Mourners have gathered outside of Buckingham Palace, singing God Save the Queen. Queen Elizabeth, Britain's longest ruling monarch, died today. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. That's British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 8th. Today, London Bridge is down. That's the official language used to announce that Queen Elizabeth's 70-year reign has come to an end. The 96-year-old monarch died while surrounded by family at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. Buckingham Palace announced her death, but did not disclose any causes. Queen Elizabeth's heir, Charles, has ascended to the throne as King Charles III. During her lifetime, Queen Elizabeth served as a constant presence, a figure symbolizing continuity for the United Kingdom, even as the world and Britain's place within it has fundamentally changed. I think it's safe to say that Elizabeth, through her diligence and personality, secured the monarchy during her reign because she was so well-liked and admired. That's reporter Adrian Higgins, who covered the royal family for years. The question moving forward is, will her successes be as popular, frankly? And, you know, if they're not, we may not see uh, a constitutional monarchy in Britain uh, in the decades or centuries ahead. Adrian spoke to host Martine Powers about the Queen's life and legacy. They can take it from here. So the fact that she was the longest reigning monarch in British history and that she just lived such a long life, I mean, I think that's what makes it so hard to encapsulate that life in one conversation. But I do want to go through some of the beats of, of who she was and, and how her her life and her and her reign evolved. And I think it's worth starting in 1936, when Elizabeth was 10 years old. And up until that point, I mean, she probably assumed that she was going to be like a not that important royal figure, right? Like her dad wasn't king. Her uncle was king. The line of succession was supposed to go through him. But then there is an abdication and that totally changes the course of her life. Can you talk a little bit about that moment for her? Yes. I mean, it's often been said that had she not become the queen, she would have lived this very sort of quiet, amiable life of an English aristocratic countrywoman who had her dogs, her horses, um, you know, her walks, her Land Rover, all that stuff, (laughs) and her green wellies. And in her private life, she sort of lived that a little bit. But uh, no, no one would barely have recognized or known her. And uh, her life, as you say, completely upended when her uncle, Edward VIII, decided to abdicate so he could marry the divorcee from Baltimore. But you must believe me when I tell you 
that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And basically she was um, trained, if you will, to, 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 to be the princess and then to be the queen. I can make my solemn act of dedication with a whole empire listening. I should like to make that dedication now. It is very simple. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. And she led a very sort of um, secluded life. I mean, she didn't go to school. She didn't mix with other children other than her own relatives. And she was very close to her younger sister, Margaret Rose. But it was always, uh, from that point on, Elizabeth was always going to be, you know, the big sister who had a big role to play. Elizabeth's father died in 1952, and that's when Elizabeth ascends to Queen, and, and she's very young at the time. As you said, she's in her 20s. What were those first decades of her reign like? And what was it like for Britain to have this new monarch who is almost barely older than a teenager? Yeah, she was 25 when her father unexpectedly died. Um, and she was crowned the following year. But she became queen in February of 52. What a spectacle of color and pageantry it was as the head of the queen's procession approached the abbey. She had a young family. Her husband, you know, Prince Philip, was this very handsome, you know, I think he was described as a blonde Viking. Among the lay lords, the first to declare himself is her own husband, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Rising, he kisses the queen's cheek and touches the queen's crown in token of his readiness to help her bear its burden. And most of us know Elizabeth and Philip, you know, in their later years as sort of this aging couple. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to know that in the 1950s that they were a glamorous, you know, star-lit couple and uh, were injecting in, in a very austere Britain after World War II a note of glamour and colour. Now the moment of moments arrives, resplendent in the regalia with which she had been invested so solemnly, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, with her consort beside her, concludes her royal progress. One thing about the glamour, I mean, I think that that is inextricable from television and the fact that television started to become part of how people were engaging with the monarchy and specifically with Elizabeth. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how her reign coincided with this era of watching our kings and queens on TV? Yes. Well, television in Britain was a complete novelty in the 1950s. A lot of the old fuddy-duddies didn't want the television cameras at the Queen's coronation in June of 1953 because hmm. they thought it would, um, in a way, be blasphemous. It would become crass, you know. Uh, but uh, the modern folks around her, including Prince Philip, prevailed and said, yes, we want to have television. And, of course, it was a huge hit. 
So I want us to listen to a bit of the Queen's first televised Christmas speech. This was in 1957. And you can hear in it how she's trying to reassure people that being on TV is okay, that this kind of change is is all right. That it's possible for some of you to see me today is just another example of the speed at which things are changing all around us. Because of these changes, I'm not surprised that many people feel lost and unable to decide what to hold on to and what to discard, how to take advantage of the new life without losing the best of the old. It very much gets to the core of who she was in terms of her own sense of honor and moral integrity. She was also reflecting the the very deep concerns at the time about the, we, we were on the very edge of modernity. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. They would have religion thrown aside Morality in personal and public life made meaningless. Honesty counted as foolishness. And self-interest set up in place of self-restraint. A lot of people at the time were worried that those traits were going to be eroded by our modern age, more a, a, a moment of the self. But, but at the same time, I mean, this, yes, this was a, a moment of cultural change, maybe even like philosophical change, and, and certainly a lot of changes in Britain. But also, I mean, this was a moment of of real change in what it meant to be a monarch, literally, of a lot of countries that were renegotiating their, their relationship with the monarchy, thinking about independence. Um, and in some ways, she's sort of reigning over an empire, like most of which is like, I don't know if we want to be part of this. So what was that like for her? And, and how did she how did she navigate this kind of post-colonial moment? Yes, she 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 became the monarch at a time when the British Empire was in imploding essentially, and all these colonial countries were seeking and and obtaining uh, independence, uh, you know, notably India and Pakistan in the late 40s. You know, by 1960, a lot of African countries had um, become independent. So she was, you know, starting this job, if you will, with the, with the sort of the rug of empire being pulled away from her. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was that there was a very clever, I, I think, very smart and, and, and good sort of transfer from empire to commonwealth. And um, she was very proud of that, the commonwealth. It meant a great deal to her. And she liked this whole idea of there being a fraternity of nations and of people around the world. Now I think the sins of colonialism are now being more acutely viewed and mm-hmm. considered. And whether that fraternity holds up under this 21st century scrutiny, I think, is open to question. But during her reign, I think not so much. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about Elizabeth's personal life. You mentioned Philip, um, the fact that he was, especially when he was young, this gregarious character and her, her children 
how was she able to navigate all three of those roles of being a wife, as well as being a mother, as well as being a queen? And what were the ways in which those came into conflict? Well, they came into conflict several ways. I have to back up a little bit and talk about her marriage to Philip. Philip was a very virile, pragmatic, impatient alpha male who wanted to run you know, the business, run the show. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the series The Crown, the I watched a lot of the Crown. The showrunner there, <laughs> Peter Morgan, made the made the point that the dramatic tension in that marriage was that Philip was the alpha male uh, who was subordinated to his wife. Mm-hmm. His wife was this demure, reticent person who was propelled to, you know, he probably be, didn't really want to be in charge, yeah, but had to be in charge. Exactly, to be the top dog. But mm-hmm. their personalities were very different. They both had a solid commitment to their respective roles and to the duty to the monarchy. And he was her main support throughout. And although, yes, he was gaff prone, he was impatient, he was brusque. He was there. He was the buttress for her. And I I think on a personal level, it was a very successful marriage. And um, she sort of has a public persona and a private persona. The question is, how? what's the distance between the two of them? Mm. I think not as much as we might think. I mean, there probably is more with Charles. But with the Queen, as you know, what you saw is pretty much what you got. Um, she had this face that when she wasn't smiling, it just was a stone face, and you couldn't read it. And um, so you couldn't tell if she was absolutely pensive or miserable, or bored, or enraged, or what. You just it was you couldn't decipher it. Uh, and I think that, in a way, served her well, you know. But mm. she was a joyful person. So as for her children, yes, there were times absolutely when she had to put the monarchy above her family. And you see repeated um, moments of that and glimpses of great uh, stress uh, having to do that. After the break... Adrian explains some of the Queen's more vulnerable moments and controversial decisions. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So, Adrian, you have covered the royal family for years. Can you describe a little bit about how the late Queen Elizabeth's relationship with her son Charles evolved, how his affair with Camilla 
colored that relationship and then what starts to happen when Diana comes into the picture? Yes, you have to examine Charles and he always felt that his parents were remote and he complained, uh, you know, carped that uh, he didn't have as close a relationship with his mother as he would have liked. And the low point was without question in the 1990s and early 2000s. And um, that had to do with the whole debacle of Charles and Diana, but other catastrophes that occurred then in the aftermath of Diana's death. This was a time when Charles was connected uh, more openly with Camilla and uh, wanted her to be more accepted. But I think it, it goes back to uh, how much she was stung by Diana's death, and we can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a moment that frankly sticks out to me a lot. I remember when Diana died. I remember how my mom reacted when Diana died, how, how um, frankly bereft she was. And I think a lot of people around the world felt that way and that the queen was in this position of people wanting to hear something from her. Talk a little bit about how Elizabeth responded to Diana's death and and why that was a, a big moment and a controversial moment. Okay. Well, you have to understand the context, which was, um, I think, in, in 1992, five years before her death, the queen had what she called her annus horribilis, her horrible year, mm-hmm. which was where she had Charles and Diana split up, Andrew and Fergie split up, I think Anne and Mark Phillips split up. And then you had this terrible fire at Windsor Castle, which was her favorite abode. So, and then you had all these uh, sordid interviews and disclosures between Charles and Diana in the ensuing years. And then finally, after Diana gave her interview to the BBC in which she said, Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. And sort of making her case to the, to the public and how the royal family had been horrible and all that. The Queen said to Charles, you've got a divorce, you know, this is it. And um, only a year later, Diana was killed in that terrible accident in, in Paris. And the, the public opinion at that point had already turned against Charles. Now it was turning against the royal family. Hmm. And the British public was uh, grief-stricken by this death, but also very angry. But they wanted somebody, I feel, to blame for Diana's death. And instead of blaming the driver of the car, they blamed the paparazzi and then they blamed the queen who was, if you remember, was in Balmoral with William and Harry and Charles. This is a house in Scotland. The remote holiday home in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't come back to London. Mm -hmm. Um, Her rationale was she wanted to protect Harry and... uh, William from the onslaught. Mm -hmm. But the public misread that 
as her being aloof and remote. And for the record, I would challenge whether the public was misreading that and seeing her being aloof and remote or, or, or reading properly that she was being a- aloof in a time when people really wanted a public show of grief and, a, and a, an honesty about this tragedy that didn't seem to come natural to her. You're right. It didn't come natural to her. Uh, but she doesn't do sort of emotional tending, you know. Uh, well, she does, but in a different, very reserved and oblique way. And um, it would, just wasn't in her wiring to to respond to that. And then she did end up responding in, in this speech that she made, this address. She did. She gave this address uh, in which it was very carefully worded, in which she spoke you know, of sort of grief, but there was no um, outpouring of affection for Diana, respect and sorrow, but not love, I'd say. We can all, wherever we are, join in expressing our grief at Diana's loss and gratitude for her all-too-short life. It is a chance to show to the whole world the British nation united in grief and respect. May those who died rest in peace, and may we, each and every one of us, Thank God for someone who made many, many people happy. She walked that tightrope very well there. You have to understand that within the court, within the palace, there was the feeling that Diana had betrayed the royal family. And that actually came to a head during her funeral when her brother, if you remember, got up and gave this eviscerating speech against the uh, royal family. This is Diana's brother, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. the Earl Spencer. Diana explained to me once that it was her innermost feelings of suffering that made it possible for her to connect with her constituency of the rejected. And here we come to another truth about her. For all the status, the glamour, the applause, Diana remained throughout a very insecure person at heart almost childlike in her desire to do good for others so she could release herself from deep feelings of unworthiness of which her eating disorders were merely a symptom. The world sensed this part of her character and cherished her for her vulnerability whilst admiring her for her honesty. And um, there was this uh, applause that sort of came from outside all the people outside Westminster Abbey, and then it came into the Abbey, this applause. Hmm. And it was like this, the support of this eviscerating eulogy and sort of humiliation of, of, of the royal family. And that, to me, was actually the lowest point. And then after that, she had to pick up the pieces, which she did. But I think that was the lowest point of her monarchy. It does seem like there have been some echoes of that more recently with this drama with Harry and Meghan and their kind of extrication from the royal family. Meghan, of course, representing a lot to people because she's the first person of color to be a part of the royal family. So I don't want to get too far into the drama because I think a lot of people watch the Oprah interview and like we know we know what happened. But like, what do you make of that? What do you make of of how this most recent episode has reflected on the Queen and how she has navigated it and how it has sort of mirrored 
these previous um, tensions that she's had to go through in the past. Part of the, the falling out with Harry, Meghan, and the royal family had to do, well, Meghan says so herself, that you know she interestingly echoes the same complaints that Diana made is that, you know, there was no emotional or support there for her. Uh, within, and, and commentators would argue, well, that's because she misread the role. Hmm. You know, that wasn't ever going to be the role. The, the, whole, the whole point of the royal family is that you, if you're in that orbit, is to support the queen or the monarch mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps the heir. And everything else is subordinate to that. But, I mean, I have to, to push back, honestly, mm. or I think this is really from, a, from an American perspective. But I think a lot of people see how things played out and don't see it that way. They see Megan as someone who represents the future of what the royal family should be, especially the fact that she's a woman of color, especially the fact that she's, like, committed to this, to being more kind of, like, emotionally vulnerable publicly and talking about things that she was experiencing behind the the scenes in terms of mental health issues, seeing that as, like, the healthy way forward. And then this family of white people who are trying to quash that, who are so committed to this, like, stodginess, to this kind of remoteness. So I, I think that there's a, a real tension there in terms of how you see the queen in this moment and and what it says about the royal family going forward. Well, uh, yeah, I understand that perspective. It, it's it's absolutely not the one that, that, that rules the royal family. There was... Um, the, their, their feeling is, and, and the feeling of many commentators, is that if you reduce them to mortals, <laughs> you know, with all the emotional connection that we have with people we want to be close to, that you wreck the ma- magic of it and uh, they become ordinary and vulnerable. And if they become too vulnerable, then they... You know, it, it wrecks the whole persona of it. But the other, I think the important thing is that, that there's one queen bee and that's it. Though now there is going to be a king bee in Charles um, and also William eventually. I think, frankly, a lot of people wish that, that I was skipping over Charles and going to William. Um, but talk a little bit about the future of the monarchy and what that is going to look like in this post-Elizabeth era. What, what is your prediction for how King Charles III, if that's what he ends up going by, is going to handle this pretty complicated job? He doesn't come in with the popularity of, of, the, of his mother, uh, no question, and he'll have to be careful. There are pitfalls. The thing with Charles is this. He was a very active Prince of Wales and... Uh, uh, t- took on many causes, but his causes are much closely connected to the political sphere, uh, climate change, uh, s- environmental conservation, urban renewal. And in the past, he was faulted for coming very close to crossing the line that a monarch of Britain cannot cross which is into politics. Mm-hmm. That's the third rail for the monarchy. You can't uh, do that. And he, as Prince of Wales, you know, wrote many letters trying to cajole ministers to do this and that. 
he has said he recognizes that as king he can't do that, that he will now keep his mouth shut. Now, the question is, will he? And if, he's, if he can't keep his uh, dis- disagreement with public policy or what have you uh, it, it quiet, or, or if he brings it into the, the realm of his sovereignty, then I think you would not only have uh, a problem with people having difficulty with that, but also the government. You know, growing up in England, uh, one always thought that Elizabeth would always be there, that she would be this constant presence. The thing that strikes me is that when she came to the throne in the 50s, Britain was like on a different planet. And when you think of, you know, the, the 21st century and how different the world is, you know, she was this constant uh, beacon. She was, she was the one thing that didn't change. And now that's gone. So I, I think that is going to leave a huge hole in, in not just British society, but around the world. Adrian Higgins is a writer and reporter who's covered many things here at The Post, including gardening, and the royal family. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Savvy Robinson and Ariel Plotnick. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lexi Diao. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.